Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Book of Ephesians chapter 2. And if you would, as you turn to that, would you stand with me, please, in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? And we'll dive into the message that he has for us as we pick up where we left off last week. So Ephesians, the second chapter, let's start in verse 4. And we're going to read down through verse 10, and then we'll see what God has in store for us this morning. So starting in verse 4 of the second chapter of Ephesians, it says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, this morning we have opened your word. We have read your word, Father, and now we ask that you fill your word full of life and you place it in our spiritual hearts that we may grow to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and have a positive impact on this lost and dying world in which we live. Today, honor and glorify yourself. This we pray in the name of your precious son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've been with us the last few weeks as we've started in this second chapter, you know that we've talked about first in the very first few verses about where we stood in our spiritual death. So we were in spiritual death, but Paul here was writing not about the spiritual death, but about the life that comes from it. So first and foremost, we saw in this second chapter of Ephesians that we were from a spiritual death. We were from a spiritual death, we learned last week, into a life together in Christ. And we were in a life together with Christ from the spiritual death by God's love, if you remember. We talked about God's love last week. And we were from that spiritual death by God's love into an eternal life, if you remember, as we, we looked at last week. And we ended up there in verse 5, talking about that eternal life, when in verse 5 it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, Uh, God made us alive together with Christ. And it says, by grace you have been saved. So we looked at this spiritual death that we were in, and we came from that by God's love into this eternal life. But he didn't stop there. He said, uh, as he moves forward in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says that we were from this spiritual death by God's love into eternal life. And the point we want to start with today is that it was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. Oftentimes when you talk to folks about their salvation and about their salvation experience and about why they they come to church, why do they do these things, they want to talk about this point in time, this, this one particular moment in their life when they came to understand their need for a Savior and they, they prayed a prayer and they went into a baptismal pool and were baptized and they came out and lived no different. They want to talk about this one moment in time when they grabbed a hold of this life rope to to save themselves from a place called hell, but there's been absolutely no growth from that point forward. They've lived off the milk of the Word and not the meat of the Word. They've lived off their presence in church, not their participation in church. They've lived off of what others tell them, not what they've learned themselves. 
And what Paul tells us here is we were dead in this spiritual life, and by God's love, he brought us out of that spiritual death, this spiritual death that we were hooked on this, this sin, and we were, we were just plagued by it, and we were controlled by it, and we were brought from that spiritual death into a life by God's love. And he did it for a purpose. Look at what that purpose is as he starts there in 5, whenever he does say, even when we were dead in trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. He tells us that we were raised up together. Should give you this picture. Should give you this picture of a dead body that's been buried in the ground that's been brought back to life. You've been raised up. What would be the purpose of a resurrection? To leave a dead body brought to life standing in a cemetery. But we look at salvation just like that. We look at salvation as a ticket out of the ground, out of a place called hell, and into life. But once we're alive, we do nothing with it. Remember in chapter 1, he talked about this power that raised Christ from the dead and how you being raised from spiritual death are filled with this power? What good is power if the switch is never turned on? What good is electricity if we never put a bulb in the light fixture? What good is having a tank full of gas when you have no key to start the car? And what Paul's telling us here is you were dead and you've been raised and you've been filled with this power and it's all for a purpose. You see that raised up together and the, the tense that it is there in the Greek, as you look at those, those words in the Greek, the tense there tells us that it was immediate, first and foremost. You're coming to life from the dead, your salvation, your being a different person isn't something you grow into. It's an immediate grace of God. That he takes that dead life and he makes it alive. We see when Jesus called someone from the tomb, when he touched a dead body on a bed, he didn't have to go through rituals. He just called them forth or he touched them and they came to life. He filled them with this power. And it's an immediate thing. Why do I tell you that it's an immediate thing? Because most of us live like it's not. We're constantly searching for the next thing. We're constantly searching for that magical thing that's going to give us this life. That's going to give us this power to go out into the world and make a difference. That's going to give us this, this body, this, this semblance of, of a Christian. But see, when God raised you from the dead, He put within you the Holy Spirit. And you have all the power you'll ever need to succeed in your Christian walk. Then, Brother Roger, what keeps us from succeeding? The fact that we don't recognize we have that power. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Paul's saying, look, you've been raised from the dead and it was an immediate transformation. You were changed from a life of death to, a, to an eternal life with God. And you were done, uh, that was done because of God's love for you. It's not something we're waiting on. It's got not something that is going to come when you get to heaven. It's something you've been given now. And see, he raised us up, and he did this, and placed us in this place that he calls the heavenly places there in verse 6. He says he raised us up together, together with Christ, 
And he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Now you may tell me this morning, Brother Roger, I'm sitting in Morris Creek Baptist Church. Yes, physically you are. But spiritually, where are you sitting? Where's your spiritual home? Where's your focus? Where does your thought process take you? Does it take you to your daily walk here on earth? Are you thinking the things of God? You see, because what Paul says is the day that you were brought from that life that was filled with sin, that death, when you were brought to life, you were seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. As far as God is concerned, you're already home. Your place in heaven has already been made. You already have a seat in heaven. And it's with your Savior. It's with Jesus. See, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And as the Greek states it there, it's a past tense. It's an aorist tense, which means it's an absolute, already been done, can't be undone. It's something that God has chosen to do for you that you can't do for yourself. The day he plucked you from the hands of sin and placed you in eternal life, he seated you spiritually at the right hand with his son, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thought. See, it should make your entire Christian walk a little different. See, we get hung up in what's going on in the world around us, not knowing that we're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. No matter what challenge faces you here, no matter what attacks your physical body, no matter what the government does to change the way you worship, no matter what they say around you to ridicule you, it doesn't change your seat. You still have a seat with Jesus. And no matter what they do to your physical body, they can't do a thing to your eternal soul because you're already seated with Christ, the right hand of the Father. It should really make your walk different. It should make your walk different in your love for your Father. See, because if you're going to be in His presence eternally at His right hand, don't you want to know something about Him? It should give you a thirst for His Word. It should give you this thirst that can't be quenched, that you just continually dive into His Word because you realize even now you're in His presence spiritually and for eternity you will be there. Don't you want to be in the presence of a Father that you know? A Father that you know loves you? A Father that you know has given all for you? A Father that you know that hasn't left you here on this earth to fend for yourself? See, many of us live as if we're stuck in this place and this is going to be our home forever. But it's not. I think about this verse in John. John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles and want to turn with me, John chapter 11, it's a story that you'll recognize, I'm sure. John chapter 11, we'll just pick up part way through and uh, like verse 32, we'll just kind of start in the middle of the story, but you know this story in verse 32 of John 11, it says this, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. So what is the story? Do you remember Lazarus? Lazarus had died. Jesus had gotten the message that Lazarus was dead. What did he do? He waited. He didn't rush. 
There was no hurry. He was in complete control. He says, Mary here fell at his feet and said, Jesus, if you would have just been here, my brother would be alive. Moves on in verse 33. says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. He had compassion. He hurt for the family. I think he also hurt for what he was about to do to Lazarus. We'll talk about that at another time. In verse 36 it says, And the Jews said to him, See how he loved him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Do we see another cave somewhere with a stone against it somewhere later? See, this is a precursor for this. He says in the next verse, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. I think the King James says, He stinketh. It's literally the way it's translated in some. He's been dead four days. He goes on in verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that it... If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So he realizes their doubt. He realizes the fact that they don't truly believe who he is. So he says, Father, there's no need for me to say these things out loud. You know my heart, I know your heart. But because of their ignorance, because of the fact that they don't believe, I've said what I said. And he moves on to say, now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, or to them, loose him and let him go. Why do I tell you that story in relation to what we're reading in Ephesians, what we're learning in Ephesians? You see, when you were wrapped in grave clothes and placed in the cave and you had the tomb sealed with the sin of your life, Jesus showed up one day. You had been dead for a while. You had lived in that sin because you chose to. And Jesus showed up at the tomb one day and he said, Roger, come forth. And out of a tomb of death, I stepped, still wrapped in this body of sin, still wrapped in that sin. And he said to those there, the angels, whatever it may have been around me, just like he said to those, he said, loose him and let him go. You see, when you were raised from death in sin, you were set free. You no longer needed those grave clothes. You were filled with the power to live in this world. You didn't need to be wrapped up as if you were going to be set in this grave forever. See, when God raised you from the dead, He set you free. It's time we as a church live that way. It's time we as a church realize God has filled us with the power that he has, not for our glory, but for his. 
When the world comes up against you, you remind the devil, you no longer have me bound. Jesus has set me free. You see, he says we're raised up together. We're placed in those heavenly places. We're sitting there with Christ in the heavenly places. And we will be for all eternity. But a question raises in my mind every time I think about why God chose to let me go to heaven. So undeserving, no desire in myself to seek God, yet He sought me. No desire whatsoever to spend eternity with God, for I enjoyed the sin that I lived in. But God sought me. And God chose to call me from the tomb. He chose to save me. But was it so that I wouldn't go to hell? Was that the purpose? So many of us think that that's it. That's not it at all. How do I know that? If he saved you to keep you from going to hell, why are you still here? If the sole purpose of your salvation is that your eternity is spent in heaven, not hell, why are you still here? Why did he not save you? And take you home. You see, we so often live as if salvation is a ticket from hell. And yes, it is. But that's not it in its entirety. See, it says he raised us up together, seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 7 to say that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. Has God been kind to you? Has he? You see, God is a God of love. He's also a God of justice. God will hold you accountable for those things you choose to do. For those that choose to sin and not take his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, he one day will judge them to an eternity in hell. For those who have sinned but have accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ's death upon a cross for their sins, His burial and resurrection for their future eternity in heaven, for those that have accepted that, Jesus took your judgment. And you will stand before Him in the righteousness of Christ. Don't ever think that God is not a judge, for He is. If He was not a judge, there would be no hell, there would be no heaven. Everyone would be in the same place. He will judge you. If you choose to live like hell, you will spend eternity there. There's no doubt about it. But remember, God loves you. God loved you so much, He sent His only begotten Son to die upon a cross for your sins. And He saved you that for all eternity, Paul says here, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. His grace. That grace that drew you from that grave and gave you the whitewashed clothes that were washed in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and set you in the heavenlies. That grace that called you from a life of death to an eternal life with Him. That He might show you the riches of that grace. And how's He going to do that? In His kindness to you forever. If you ever thought about what you're going to do in heaven, if you ever thought about how you actually live heavenly now, the only thing that makes this life bearable for me is God's grace and His kindness. Think about the things that have come your way 
that most people fall apart when they happen in their life. But somehow you made it. Somehow a tragedy's hit your life and you've come out of the backside of that tragedy whole. You've come out with your faith in God and a testimony. When others have walked the exact same path and fallen apart. See, that's God's kindness. God never promises to keep you from the trials of life. He promises to keep you through the trials of life. He promises to always be there, to never leave you or forsake you. He never promised to take away those things that hurt us, those things that cause us pain. You see, God's kindness is shown to us even now on this earth. And if He shows it to us on this earth, in this sinful body we live in, in this sinful world that we live in, how much greater, how much more abundant will that kindness be in His home called heaven? You see, Paul reminds us that we are seated there. We've already been seated there in His presence. And God saved us not to keep us out of hell primarily, but so that He could show us His kindness for all of eternity. Eternity is a long time. And God has enough kindness and love to fill all of eternity. And one day you will be in His presence, living in that presence of the Holy One with all love and all kindness where there is no need for a sun because of the glory that shines in that place where there is no need for locks on doors where there is no need for even food and those sorts of things because life will be sustained through all that God supplies us we will no longer toil in this sinful world this sinful body we will bask in the glory of our Savior day in and day out. What an awesome picture of the exceeding greatness. How do I know that God wants to glorify Himself through your salvation? Because that's what He does. See, when He saves you, it's all about Him, nothing about you, so that you cannot boast, the Word tells us next. He does it for His glory. And I think about that picture of heaven. Look over with me in Revelation. I think it's the seventh chapter. Revelation chapter 7, I believe. Yes, chapter 7. This is part way through the opening of the seals. And it's along about the sixth seal here in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Revelation. It says these things. And after these things, so it's after these things that they had done, after... Uh, the uh, Israel sealed after the sixth seal is opened up. After those things, uh, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, all of the nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, referring to His Son Jesus. He goes on to say, And all the angels stood around the throne, and all the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God. And this is what they were saying. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Why did they worship Him? 
because of the glory he had shown of himself, his goodness and the salvation that belongs only to him and only to his son. See, do you realize you've been given something the angels can never experience? Salvation. The angels have no idea what it means for the Lamb of God to hang upon a cross for them. You've, haven't, you've had the holiest of holies, the Lord of all, the one who spoke into existence this world that you live in, give his life for you. And Paul reminds us that he did that so that for all of eternity he could show us kindness. But he also goes on there in Ephesians to remind us very quickly that it was all of God. For he says that through in, uh, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. You see, it's all about God's grace. Therefore, it's all about His glory. See, grace is the faith to believe in a gift. That faith that He has given us is all about His grace. You see, we think one day we decided that we wanted to believe in God. No, one day He placed in your heart. That you needed to believe in God. He tells us even in Philippians and Romans that we were given the gift of faith so that we might be able to believe. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 1, I believe it is, chapter 1, in verse 29, it says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me. And now here in us, see it says for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. It has been given to you. Back in Romans, I know he says also in the 12th chapter of Romans. In the 12th chapter of Romans he says this right at the very beginning up in verse uh, 3. It says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. See, to each of us, He has given the faith to believe. And it is by that faith that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. But notice He also goes on to say it's not of works there. He says it is of faith, but not of works in verse 9. See, so many have tried for so long to come up with a plan of salvation to come up with a method of salvation, to come up with certain things that we should do to make sure that you're saved. God's already given us a plan. We learned what it was in Ephesians chapter 1. Now we see how to get involved in it in Ephesians chapter 2. There needs to be no additions and no subtractions. God set forth the plan that one day the Holy Spirit would make alive in your heart the fact that you're dead to sin, that you've chosen to sin against Him. And that the Holy Spirit will bring to your attention that there is one way out of that sin. And that's His Son, Jesus Christ. He would, through grace, give you the faith to believe in the death of Jesus Christ for your sins. He would give you the faith to understand that the one person who could did. He died on a cross for you. 
He would help you understand that one day that body was placed in the tomb and rose three days later. Why did he rise? First and foremost, to prove that he had satisfied God's wishes. He rose from the dead to prove that what God had set forth was true, that it was complete, that it was finished, as Jesus said on the cross. And he rose to give you the hope. Hope in what? Hope that this life is not all there is. Hope that you are seated at that right hand of Jesus, at the throne of grace. See, it's not of works. It's not about your deeds. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about your ability to teach. It's not about your ability to preach, your ability to sing. All those things are gifts from God. None of those will save you. You can walk all the little old ladies across the street you want. You can give all the money to charity you want. You can do all the good deeds you want to do. But if you never believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be one of millions in hell that tried to live a good life to get to heaven and found out it doesn't work that way. See, your good works should come out of your faith. See, Paul reminds us that it's all in God's time and it's all in his way. The very last thing he says in this section of Scripture we read this morning down in Verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ for good works. See, so not only were we spiritually dead, and we were brought from that death, and we, that was done by God's love, and it was into this eternal life, and it was for the purpose of God being able to glorify himself through us, not only was it through faith that was given by God, but it was unto good works. See, there's been a disconnect in our church for years, not this church, the church at large. We work real hard on the salvation end. We love to get people saved. We love to tell them about Jesus. Then we love to sit them in a pew and leave them. And you see, what Paul's reminding us of here, he says, for we are his workmanship it's just like someone who makes a beautiful ornate sculpture he works on this sculpture and he crafts it and he makes it in such a way that it's beautiful and he works on this sculpture and when he's done he takes a hammer and beats it to pieces because he's finished right Isn't that what they all do no they now take that sculpture that they've done and they set it out for others to enjoy maybe to tell a message Maybe it's a particular theme in their life that they want to get out to the world and they do it through this gift. But they craft, they work on this thing to show the world something. God's done the exact same thing to you if you're one of His. He's taken you from that death. He's brought you into life through His love. He's done that through the faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's molding you and making you something that will show others Him. You're his workmanship. How do you do that? You do that, it says, in Christ Jesus for good works. What are your good works? Reminds me of the story of the branch and the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is in John, first, uh, back in uh, John. He says, you are, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, if you want to have fruit, abide in me. For every branch that does not have fruit, he cuts off 
and he throws in the fire. You see, those good works don't save you. Those good works prove that you're tied into the vine, that you're a part of that vine. If Sunday morning's all you get out of your week with God, you're a weak Christian. Not a seven-day week, but a W-E-A-K week Christian. See, your life should take what you learn about God and bear fruit. How does it bear fruit? In the good deeds. How do you know what good deeds? You're in fellowship with Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit. He puts those good deeds there. He puts those opportunities in front of you. See, He tells us in 1 John 3 that we need to repent. We need to seek forgiveness. We need to live a holy life for one reason. To glorify God. The more you fertilize the vine, the richer it grows. We fertilize our vine by being repentive of those things that we do against God. Once saved, always saved, yes. You never lose your salvation by the sins you commit in your life after you're saved. But you do lose fellowship with God by holding on to those and being afraid to come to God and repent of them, afraid of what somebody will think. Thinking that you can hide them away in your heart where no one sees. For God knows all things and sees all things. What's Paul telling us here in this passage? He's saying this to us. He's saying God in eternity past chose you. God in eternity present has given you the faith to believe in that Jesus that died for your sins. He's saying that if you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, live like it. Live like the power of Christ is within you. Live like you are already seated in the heavenlies. Don't sit soak and sour, but live for Christ. I hear people say we need to change the direction of this country. And yes, we do. We need to change it by showing them Jesus. The changing of a law does nothing. The changing of a life does everything. And God has chosen to change those around you through you. That's why you're still here and you haven't been taken home. Today, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you'll repent of those sins in your life. And you may say, well, I didn't, haven't committed any sins that's kept me from sharing the gospel. Well, there's sins of commission, the things you do, and there's sins of omission, the things you didn't do that God asked you to do. I'm sure all of us have a list of omitted things in our life. This morning I ask that you repent of that. Maybe today you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you know about Him. Maybe you've been in church. Maybe you've read all the stories. Maybe you've been to Bible school, but you've never had a relationship with Him one-on-one -on -one that changed you from dead to alive that filled you with the power of God. Today is the day of salvation for you. God has placed you in this place for a reason. God has had this message preached today with a purpose. That purpose is to show you Jesus. I've given you the gospel. What you do with it will spell out your eternity. Church today, pray for those you know that don't know, your, that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Pray for those that you know that are hurting. Come to the altar and shed tears on the throne of grace for those you know that need to know your God.
Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.